Welcome to Hidden Voices, the podcast series which explores the less heard voices in health and social care. I'm Chloe and I work for Healthwatch Essex. It's our job to make sure that people's experiences help to improve health and social care services. In this episode we're talking to Sean about his experiences with mental health and how physical activity has played a role in his journey. So hi Sean, thank you for coming on the podcast today. I'm very pleased to be here to be honest. So I thought we'd start just by talking a little bit about your background and how you sort of first noticed like difficulties with your mental health. Yeah, of course. Um, Really with my mental health, I didn't really know at the time that I was struggling. Mm -hmm. I sort of really, I suppose, hid it from a lot of people because I didn't understand it myself. So I didn't know I was actually struggling because of the things I was doing, which was almost masking my mental health. But with the activities I was doing, I was running a lot of the time, Mm -hmm. which was actually helping me unbeknown to me but when I actually stopped running because I'd almost gone as far as I could with it in my mind I went down quite drastically downhill really quickly Um, and when I say downhill very quickly it was over a six month period I went from being really really active to absolutely doing nothing Mm. and by doing nothing my mental health obviously I became very isolated didn't speak to people I then started doing quite strange things like self-harming um, having really, really dark thoughts to the point of getting to the point of wanting to take my own life. Um, and when I was at that point, I didn't understand anything. I didn't know how to verbalise it. I didn't know what to say. And I was in such a bad place that I did try and take my own life back in uh, it was December 2016. Mm. And not just for me, but for my whole family, it was a really hard time because... I didn't know really what was going on. They didn't know what to do. And it was almost like, oh my God, my whole world has just turned upside down. Yeah. What What's the next step? So for me, um, I only stayed in hospital for the first time, five days, I think it was. Okay, it was quite short then. Very short, because I believed it wasn't the right place for me. It wasn't, I didn't feel safe there, to be honest. That was a very, the experience of psychiatric care for me was very different and I'll get to that in a minute yeah. but the first time when is it when I was in hospital I was in Colchester in my hometown and they put me there I was scared there's a lot happening in there it's a very noisy place there's a lot of people with other issues as well that you're living besides but you quite often compare yourself to those people so you look at yourself and think actually I'm not as bad as them and maybe I shouldn't be here and so that's why you felt like it wasn't the place for you yeah and that's a little bit what I felt and I did feel very scared to be honest, I felt like I didn't know what was going to happen. There'd be alarms going off at night. There'd be very loud noises. It would be quite a hard place to live. So I discharged myself, right. um, thinking that everything would be fine. Um, and again, it wasn't. I wasn't talking. Um, the care I got after that was very limited. I had a crisis team with me for a period of time. But again, then when I'm saying I'm okay, they let me go. And then I got to, it was about the May time again, and I tried to start my own life again um, because I still was in a horrendous place. I wasn't coping. I couldn't work. I couldn't do all the other things. But I was then put into a place in Harlow, and I lasted two days, literally two days, because I couldn't live there. It was, it was horrendous for me. I couldn't relax. I felt scared, too many noises, and the care wasn't that great to be to be honest Um, it was really hard to again discharge myself my whole family and my wife didn't want me to they wanted me to stay there because they knew I wasn't well but because I could discharge myself I did 
Um, and I was a long way from home. So I was like, what, what do I do? So from that point, we got to around June time and I then decided to try and take my life again. Mm. By this point, I really had enough and I just want everyone to just go away and for me to be out of this world. That's and the easiest way to try and understand when somebody feels like that is you feel have no worth, you feel pointless, useless, all of those things and you feel the world is a better place without you. But lucky for me now that I was saved. Um, a lot of people, they put a lot of work into me to get me to that point. I had a lot of people saying, look, if you don't go to hospital this time and go to psychiatric care, you will be sectioned. I knew what that meant because of obviously being in care before. So I said, okay, but when they told me where I was going to have to go, I had a meltdown, literally. I was told I'm going to have to go originally to a place in London. Well, because I was saying no, 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 I was pushing against it. They then, at that time, said to me, you're going. No, I'm not. Then the bed had gone by this point right. because it had been three hours of me kicking off. We then got to the next day and they said, look, you can stay at home tonight, but tomorrow we're taking you away because my parents and my wife had said they'll look after me for that night, but I have to go tomorrow. And the only bed that was available was in Bristol. So Bristol was 300 miles away from where I lived. Yeah. At that point... It's sort of reinforcing all of the things I've been thinking. Nobody wants me. Nobody needs me. My family are pushing me. That's how it feels in my in your mind, but that's not actually the reality. You felt like you're being sent a long way away. Yeah, yeah. And you yeah. feel like actually nobody really wants you, but actually they do, and they want the best care for you. So when I got taken there, my wife actually drove me there because they wanted to take me by ambulance, but I was so scared and I didn't want to go. Mm. She said, I'll come and I'll take you for the day. So she took me down there. And I, again, unbeknown to me, I didn't know this at the time, but I was going to a private hospital. Right. Purely by chance. It was purely there was not enough beds in the NHS. So they sent me to a private hospital. But was that NHS? Like, it was NHS paid for, paid for it, yeah. Right. So they paid for that because there was no other beds available. Yeah. So it was purely, I, the way I sort of understand it, is a private hospital, but they take NHS as well because obviously that's part of it. But for me, when I got there, it was a total different entity when I got there. It was almost like your room was very different. The support of the people, even on the first day when I arrived, they couldn't do enough for you to actually make you feel comfortable. I mean, I spent the first day really crying most of the time in my room, but they were constantly like looking after you and being with you. When before, I had none of that. So all of a sudden, they're trying to help me straight away. And then the one thing that came from that after the first two days, I actually started to see that actually maybe being here might be beneficial to me. Yeah. You know, all of a sudden, I've, my thought patterns of like, this isn't the place for me is almost starting to change because I'm still in the realms at that point of still trying to self-harm. I'm still trying to, having the suicidal thoughts. I've got all of those things. But I've got now somebody beside me constantly almost listening to me and being with me. So you're not so alone. You've got somebody supporting you. But the other part of it is I was in a mixed ward, which is, again, another thing I've never come across before. Right. And again, I was quite reluctant, to be honest, because, mm -hmm. again, you don't really know what to expect. But in some ways, for me, that was a lot better because I got to converse with so many different people, but on... A different platform it was a very different so when you say a mixed ward was that like different types of like mental health conditions or like 
different severities? Sex, yeah, different sexes as well. Okay. So it was very different. So it was when I've been in psychiatric care before, both of those times, it was male only. Right. And to be honest, that has its pluses and its negatives. Yeah. But it was quite, I felt quite volatile. But when I went there, it was a lot calmer. It was a lot more relaxed. And like I said, I got a lot more care. So I got a lot more, like when I was actually being treated, like for instance, one of the stories when I was there, a doctor came round to me one day and he spent probably half an hour talking to me, which again is unheard of. Yeah, it's quite a long time. <laughs> it's a long time. So he sat with me talking to me. He was asking me all questions about what I've been doing and how I felt about things. And really sort of taking the interest in me. But one of the things he said to me when he finished the chat, he said, um, could you write me a diary of your day for, until I come down next time? And I, I'm thinking in my head, yeah, of course I can, not a problem. So he came round two days later. And I'd written down everything I'd done in those two days. And I went to give it to the doctor. And the doctor said, that's not for me. I want you to read it. And it was for me, it was almost like journaling in a way yeah. about my journey. And that taught me a very big thing early on that actually there's a lot more good things in my day than bad things. So again, it's a skill that I got learned straight away from somebody there, which I had never been told before. I also then got to do things like yoga. Mm. I went out on daily walks. I got to spend time in a garden. They taught me about uh, meditation, lots of different therapies, which again, in the other places, they weren't available. Um, would you have tried any of those things before? Or would you have sort of dismissed them as being not for you? I dismissed all of them when I first got there. When I was first there, yoga was the classic. I I had my perception of yoga. And again, I wasn't in the right headspace to do yeah. it, really. But after four days of this other lady on the ward saying to me, look, just come and do it, I actually went. And it took me three times of going before I actually started to get... I remember with my shoulders, I was in just sitting in a chair... And the yoga instructor was holding on my shoulders and she was telling me about the breathing. And I'm sitting there and I think, this isn't for me because we hold so much tension in our body. But actually, once I got the breathing and the relaxation and actually having the confidence to let go, all of a sudden I got that, that feeling. And again, it was very much that thing of my mind is telling me no, but actually I've never tried it, so I didn't actually know. Yeah. But it gave me the confidence because again, being around like-minded people as well, made it a bit easier because the person who I was talking to, this lady, she understood how I was anxious, how I was feeling depressed and I didn't want to, but she also understood how the benefits it was to her. Yeah. And that's the big difference, you know, actually being on a level playing field with somebody is incredibly important, but also having the right staff members around to do that as well. You know, they, the major differences I said with the hospitals was you, people had a lot more time for you in the private hospital. And, and to tell you the story, I ended up staying there for 28 days. Which is quite different to your five days and your two days before. Then got sent back to Colchester, which I was in there two days and left. Yeah. Because by this point, I didn't need to be in there in my eyes. And also, I'd learned so much from there, I didn't want to go back into there to get, in my opinion, get worse. Because mm. the problem is with it for me, there's a place for that and there's a need for that. But the problem is, in my eyes, is it's not the right therapy. When you're in crisis and you're in that place, you need love, support, you need understanding. And there's not always enough of that there. And that's yeah. not the staff's fault because the staff don't have the time and they're understaffed. But there needs to be more therapies that are beneficial. You know, like locking somebody in a room and locking them in a confined area, 
I know is not good for your mental health anyway. Yeah. What they need to be doing is the stuff like I was doing, I was being taken out, I was being taken into the garden, I was doing therapies, I was doing outdoor stuff as well, which then helped me grow. Yeah. Um, and don't get me wrong, after 28 days, I wasn't sorted at all. I'm still in that place now and I still know those things, but I'm a lot better equipped now to actually deal with those situations. And that's what I learned from that. So, yeah, it gave you those sort of coping skills and things. Yeah. And I'm still learning now. I mean, the way I look at it now is for me, I'm good at talking and telling people like all of the different things that are happening and the things I've done. But I'm great at also looking at something and thinking, actually, I've not tried that before. I'll give it a go. Because I know that our minds put up barriers and say no. But actually, unless you've tried it, you'll never know. So that's like a shift in mindset. Yeah, yeah. Trying to almost understand that, you know, like with food, we sometimes look at food and go no. But actually, have you tried it? No. It's the same with actually activities. It's exactly the same principle. And it's sometimes it's a person like what I do now is very much breaking down those barriers for people to say, look, if you give it a go, it might change your life. You know, because yeah. that's what's happened to me. I won't say no to anything really now. I'll just say, well, yeah, I'll give it a try. I don't know. I might like it. I might not. But it's not you good. don't know until you try. Exactly. So I think that'd be a good point to move on to a little bit yep. about what you do now. And so since your experiences of being in hospital and struggling with your own mental health, what you've sort of got on to do? Yeah. I mean, it's been a long journey because that was back in 2016, 17 was the time that I was in, in psychiatric care and from that point, there was a long journey mm. after that, lots of ups and downs. I didn't end up in hospital again, but I was very much still in a dark place, probably. I was still yeah. learning. Were um, you getting support from like community mental health teams or any charities and stuff at the time? I was getting a certain amount of help, but a lot of it I was paying for myself. Right. So a lot of the stuff I was paying for. So for instance, mine were very good for me. I had counselling through them. But I, I had lots of different counsellors. Um, and again, for me, the one thing I'd say to anybody with counselling, if it doesn't feel right, change it. Mm. Because that's the big thing with counselling. Because um, you may go to the first counsellor and you might not connect with that person. And the one thing I've learned now is actually it's very important that you can connect with that person and have that understanding because you'll never open up the right way. Yeah. And that's part of the thing that, again, I'm very keen about now. So a little bit of what I do now from back in 2016-17 to current time. I was a golf pro, as I said earlier on, was my first job, then I was in engineering. I lost my job in 2020 in engineering. And I literally was made redundant and I started looking around at jobs to do and I thought, I don't really enjoy what I'm doing as such. But actually, I love helping people and actually I've got a story to tell and actually that could help other people. So I looked around, I didn't get any volunteering jobs early on because I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And I decided to start up a Facebook page called The Mental Health Fire. I started up that page and I started doing walking groups on a Saturday morning. And all I put was, I'm going for a walk with my dog. If anyone wants to come, you're more than welcome. And it's just a bit of therapy, getting out with nature and just going for a walk. And what happened was lots of people wanted to start joining and coming along. So then that got recognised by Mind because um, one of the ladies who I used to see saw what I was doing and said, would you like to come and volunteer for us? And I said, yeah, yeah, I'll give it a go because I'm not working, I've got nothing to lose, maybe I can help out. She said, well, would you like to do a walking group for us? Yeah, can do, I can give it a go. Um, So on a Wednesday afternoon, once a month, we decided to do this. Then I got more involved in a friendship group 
that sort of opened up the doors to me yeah. to volunteering, really. Yeah. That was the thing. So, and were uh, those groups quite popular? Quite attend? Yeah, I mean, the, the mind ones were very limited because they were aimed at people who were being in treatment at that time and maybe having counselling. So it was a little bit more limited that way. But actually, the referrals I got after that for people coming to the Saturday Walk, a lot of them came through that as well, which was fantastic. Um, but then what happened from there was with all of the volunteering work I was doing, I got recognised with the stuff I was doing. And then Community 360 um, came to me around December 2021 and said to me, look, we're seeing what you're doing. We've got this walking project thing that we we're already doing in Braintree. And we've seen what you're doing. And we think we'd really like to see if you'd like to come and work for us and do something similar. And I was like, well, of course. Yeah, you know, if you want to pay me to do a job that I'm now volunteering yeah. for, of course. Um, but I didn't really know too much about what they wanted from that. So the community aspect part, and the charity part, I'd never really been involved in. So I never really understood how any of that worked. So I got asked, obviously come in, had an interview, done all the stuff you have to do, then got offered the job. When I came in, it's a funded project. So mm. it, it's funded by um, like the LDP. And again, these are all things that I'm learning. And then Active Essex. Yeah. And what it is, they set me some targets to go out to try and do. And when I saw the targets, I think, God, how am I going to do this, this and this, you know, with reaching this amount of people? The biggest advantage I had over anyone else when they tried to do this before was my social media presence. Yeah. It helped me massively. Because you've got quite a big social media presence, haven't you? Yeah, it helps me because, you know, because I talk openly all of the time online about my, my difficulties I've had, but also the things I now do. People connect with me and have an understanding of what I'm about, but that also helps anyone who's coming to the walks. The big thing I hear from people quite often who see me online and come to the walks is by seeing me online, they already know who I am and what I'm about, which gives them the confidence to come. So the hardest thing for anybody going to a new group is how, how do I fit in? Who do I speak to? Yeah. What's it about? But me being out there almost gives that people that confidence and it sort of allows them to look at me and go, actually, he may understand a little bit of what I'm going through. Um, and for instance, like with the walks now, I mean, it's remarkable now. Like I had, well, yesterday, for instance, I had 18 people at my walk um, on a Tuesday afternoon, you know, Tuesday lunchtime. And I look at that when I started in the first walk I done was April last year. I had two people turn up. And it's not about numbers because the thing is, numbers are fantastic. So if you get large numbers of people, you look at it and people go, it's a success. But actually, it's the outcomes you get from those things. Yeah, so, the people that are being helped, the, yeah, the people the, that can connect with each other. That's the huge part, because it's actually what I've noticed with the walks. The walks are very secondary to the activity. Mm. It's the social aspect is the biggest part for people, because when they're out, they get to talk to different people, meet new people. But being out in nature is so calming. It's one of those places that when you're walking side by side with somebody, you don't have any eye contact. And the eye contact thing is where we often hide behind. Yeah. So when you're talking with somebody and you're going along, and this is a term I use all of the time, you can be talking about the most difficult subject in the world, be walking along the path, and if you're finding something difficult, you can go, oh, did you see the squirrel? Or did you see the flowers? Or you can control the conversation a lot easier. So it's a lot more relaxed. But you're getting so much more benefits because you're getting the physical and the mental side all rolled into one. And if I say to somebody quite often, the questions I get quite often are quite funny because they're quite often the same things. How fast are you going to walk? How far are you going to walk? I don't know if I can do that. 
And the way I deal with that is we only go as fast as the slowest person and it's a group collective. We actually are not about speed. Some walking groups are obviously because that's yeah. what they need to do and what they want to do. But mine is purely about just getting people out of the house to do something, to build some structure. Because for me, I understand firsthand that the structure was what I missed and I needed. And nature was a great place to go to get those... That reason to get out of the house, that reason to yeah. connect with people. Yeah, having a purpose. I mean, structure is a big thing for us as human beings, 100%. I know when I lost structure, I went downhill quite quickly. I didn't realise that structure was helping me at the time because I never really looked at it that way. But now when I look back, I can look at it and see that without that structure in place, my world almost like fell apart because I, I didn't know how to do something when I've lost it in effect. It's yeah. almost like now with the walks, because they happen six days a week all over Colchester, what's actually happened for people is all of a sudden there's a structure in place. If they can attend, they can come. There's no booking. If I said to people, you need to book, and then all of a sudden they didn't come. As a human being, quite often we feel like we'll let somebody down mm. and the chance of you coming back is quite low. So I understand all of those parts of the anxiety and the depression. So I look at it and try and make it as simple as possible and make it as comfortable for anyone that's coming. And I think with my live life experiences, that's a big part of that. So one of the things that when we talked before, you were telling me about was your experience of doing uh, seven marathons in seven days. What was that sort of like for you? Because I take it that was quite a controlled thing you were saying, like quite regimented. Yeah, so that was back in 2015. So um, to get to that point, I've been a runner since 2004. Mm -hmm. um, I've run lots of different events. So I've run 27 marathons in my time. Wow. Um, but I've also done ultra events and other bits and 24-hour races and all sorts of stuff. But in 2015... I decided that I wanted to do seven marathons in seven days in seven counties. At the time, my wife especially thought I was nuts. <laughs> She's like, how are you going to do this? Very intense. It is very intense. And also with the marathons I've done in the past, some of them I've pushed so hard that I'd ended up collapsing, you know what I mean, at the end of the run. But it was almost like one of my good friends who I used to work with, he'd been treated by a hospice in Ipswich and he lost his life to brain cancer. And I'd worked with him for about 17 years and I wanted to do something for him. It wasn't necessarily directly for him, but it was almost like it gave me the impetus to think, actually, how can I sort of do something for Stu to actually help me in a way? So I sort of used him as a steering point And then I looked at it. My um, other family members had had treatment with the hospice in Colchester. So I thought, look, why don't I set up this big thing and raise money for the hospice? So that's where it came from. So I then started putting out feelers to different people in different parts of the county, like I need routes to go and run a marathon in, for instance, Bedfordshire or Cambridgeshire and whatever. And the response was amazing. Um, it was absolutely phenomenal. Like The running community almost like put their arms around me and like, there's a route here you can do this, this and that. But I also had a lot of people locally who come and run in different places with me for parts of the runs, which were amazing. But it was just one of those things that I had in my head I wanted to do. When I look back, that stays with me forever because no one can take that away from you. And actually, it was one of the best experiences I could honestly say. People look at it and go, God, you must have been in pieces. But to be honest, I could have kept going yeah. because I was, I was so fit at the time that I could almost like running felt easier than sleeping, to be honest. It was yeah. almost like your body's so in tune 
um, and the support I got. I mean, I raised 11 and a half grand for the hospice oh, wow. at that time, which was a huge amount of money. And for doing all of those things, I won an award through Heart Radio. I won an inspirational award in 2016. And that's really what's quite bizarre is just after that happened is when I started to go downhill. It's yeah. really bizarre because actually when I look at it, I kept pushing the boundaries of my running as far as I could. And that was almost like my running was holding me together, but I didn't know where to go after that. It's almost yeah. like that's why I would go back to talking with the other stuff of don't always rely on one thing. So for you at the time, that was your one sort of coping strategy. And I, once you stopped that, it all sort of yeah, fell apart. And quite often, I mean, I, I didn't know... I had problems with my mental health. I mean, I now know because when I look back, there was loads of signs, but my running was helping that. It was almost like the classic term running away from your problems is probably <laughs> exactly the term, but it's easy now for me to see that because I, you know, I even look back from when I was a golf pro, there was problems then when I look back mm. because I look back at that and I look at myself and think, God, I used to get home sometimes and sit in my room and think in my head or even cry and think, God, I'm not doing very well and I'm struggling. Never said nothing to anybody. And that's the problem with mental health, you know. At the time, did you not say anything because you didn't really understand about mental health or didn't have the words to explain it? Or do you feel like you couldn't talk about it? I think both, really. I mean, the one thing I always say to people is it's very hard. When you're in a really dark place, mm -hmm. it's horrendously hard to verbalise it. Mm -hmm. To verbalise it to your friends... I mean, saying to somebody that I want to end my life, I mean, how do you do that? I mean, how do you, how do you sit there to your wife and say, actually, I don't want to be here anymore? Yeah. That's the hardest part. That's why quite often strangers and helplines and all the other parts are easier to talk to. So for me, Samaritans were amazing because for me, I remember ringing them about three or four times and not saying a damn word. I'd run them and would just not say nothing because I didn't know what to say. But once I got the confidence to be able to speak, even though I was probably, in, again, crying while I was talking and whatever, it was an outlet. It was almost yeah. like a way of getting it out of what I needed to say instead of actually holding on to that because them emotions eat you up. I mean, when I look, I remember being at the bottom of the stairs and standing there, nothing conversation at home. The kids were arguing downstairs. I locked myself in the bathroom and burst into tears. And I never really understood why. But the way I look at it now when I look back, it was like the last thing that flipped me in effect because quite often people would say to me, well, what is it that made... Yeah, things build up over time, don't they? It's only a small little thing that just triggers. It's collective, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's very rarely one thing because, you know, the work I do now and speaking to so many people, a lot of the stories and the other stuff I've done now, like the chats I've done with other groups, it's very much often people who don't suffer look at it and go, well... God, you have this to worry about. But it probably wasn't that major thing. It was lots of things that have collectively come up on top of it. And then eventually, you know, they, when they say it broke the camel's back, that's the principle yeah. is exactly right. Because it can be the smallest thing that actually is the breaking point. Because we are all very different. You know, what I see as difficult, somebody else or yourself might see as not. But that doesn't mean it's not a problem. Yeah. And that's where we're quite difficult as human beings because we look at other people and think, oh, God, they've got more to worry about than me. But actually, if it's a problem to you, it's a problem and you need to try and sort it. And that's why I do what I do now about talking about it because I try to put things in the simplest terms. You know, I'm very much the person now that self-care is key. If you don't look after you, you can't look after anybody else. 
It's not selfish to go and do something for you. It's essential. All of these sort of terms I'm using all of the time for people to actually try and make them realise that for you to be a good dad, a good husband, a good wife, good whatever, you need to look after yourself because you can't do that without those principles. And I look back and I now realise a lot of the things I used to do did help me as soon as they went away, I went downhill. Mm. Um, and there, there was lots of reasons why, but them things were helping me manage my mental health. And that's why now what I do with the walks and even with the running, I mean, I'm starting a running group up at the minute because I'm a qualified run leader. And again, I know all of the benefits to those things for people. And it's almost like trying to show people the way to try and help themselves. Yeah. I'm not saying walking and running is the answer. What I'm saying is that actually these things can help you, but actually they can lead into other activities as well. So you might come to that and then you might say, oh, it's not for me, but somebody else in the group can turn around and say, well, have you tried this? Because actually this works for me. Yeah. And that's where it works. And you're a member of our Essex Fellows Forum as well, aren't you? And yes. That operates under the same sort of principles where men can get together and have a chat and a drink in a pub, but you can also go and do some gardening or go to an allotment or other sort of physical activities to walk some talks just to find different ways to connect with each other. And Yeah, it is. I mean, it's brilliant. I've been, uh, I think, three times now, and it is great. I mean, the conversation is so vast. It doesn't have to be down the realm of mental health. Mm. Quite often it's connecting and actually finding actually what's out there. But actually sometimes it is that somebody maybe want to talk about a situation. Mm. And that's what's great. It's almost like it gives you that freedom. And because actually they're just a group of guys who you don't know, it's actually a lot more relaxed. When it's guys, freeing. Almost. It is freeing. Because when you meet your mates, quite often, we often talk about football or whatever. That's how we, how we sort of converse. Mm. But actually, what we should be doing is actually checking in on each other. And when you, we go like with the Essex First Bomb, it's good like that because we do that. We actually ask them questions or we sit there and have them conversations, which you probably wouldn't do with your mates. Yeah. It's a, it, and it teaches you new skills as well. So when you are with your mates, you can then ask those questions. I think when you're with your friends or your family and those sorts of people, you get stuck in the same routines of like asking the same sorts of questions or like not not wanting to touch certain topics because you know that it might yeah, affect them. Yeah, it's, it's difficult because family members and friends know you and you know them so well. Yeah. So the conversation is very the same at times and you don't divulge a great deal mm -hmm. because sometimes, I mean, the things I hear quite often, I look back, it's like fear of judgment and all the other things that you know, I can't talk about this, but talking to strangers, it does work easier. Yeah, you know, I notice on the walks, the conversations are amazing sometimes when a new person comes in because actually it's like somebody new to talk to and almost like a new story. Yeah. And and I think that is very good for people, but actually anyone who struggles with their mental health or has had something happen to them over time, they're normally quite empathic people, so they understand the struggle. So actually they put their arms around these people without putting their arms around them. And it's almost yeah. like that's where any group activity I would always say is so good because there'll always be somebody in a group that you'll be able to connect with or have a similar story with. And that's the part of life that we all find good. So for me, you know, finding somebody when I went to my first friendship group, for instance, finding somebody who had a similar interest to me, all of a sudden, gave me a little bit of a connection with that person. Yeah. And then all of a sudden they said something about their mental health, about what had happened. Then all of a sudden you're like, 
Well, that's quite similar. That's actually good. And I'm not the only person. But actually, they then told me that they went to this and done that. And that's where it opens doors for people. Mm. And that's what I'm now learning with the stuff I do now. So thank you, Sean, for sharing your experiences and thoughts with us in part one. Uh, in a second, we'll move on to our game called Disclosure. Okay, looking forward to it. So in the second part of our podcast, we're going to play our game Full Disclosure. There's a deck of cards in front of you and each one has a thought-provoking question written on it. So when you're ready, pick any card at random and answer the question that follows. Okay, okay. Let's have a look. Let's take one out of the middle, shall we? Which health service would you give a bouquet of flowers to? Mm, that's easy. That private one. Uh, the one in Bristol, really, because mm. they changed my thought patterns. Um and it was just a really good place to be at, to be honest. So, yeah, that one, 100%. Yeah. Tell me what you love about your local area. It's easy as well, to be honest. Uh, the green space around it, I feel we're very lucky to have. Um, What's your favourite space to go walking around? Well, Highwoods, Highwoods is probably my favourite park because yeah. I do two walks there anyway. And there's so much to see. It's so vast. Um but to be honest, even like around the outside of culture, like Dedham and that sort of area, oh, that's yeah, where I beautiful. love. Yeah, it's lovely. It's one of my favourite places to go as well. So that's that one. So let's keep going from one out of the middle. What did you want to be when you were growing up? Well, I did want to be a golf pro, to be honest, because I played golf from a very young age. Um, I was very lucky that I ended up doing that. So um, obviously football as well, I loved. Um, but definitely golf was my main passion. So with did being like a professional golfer live up to the like the dream that you had of it? Um, I went into it to play golf, obviously, yeah. um, and I was very lucky. I captained my county at a young age, so I got to do all of those things. Then I turned professional. But when I turned professional, I didn't perform as well as I expected to. I was doing lots of other things as a, as a young man would, <laughs> so I wasn't probably putting the major effort in. But I ended up then going into coaching, so... I was a fully qualified PGA golf pro, which is brilliant, but it wasn't actually my passion. My passion was playing. Yeah. Um, so actually it probably didn't to that point, but I would still feel very lucky to do have done what I did. So um, next one. No one talks about, well, <laughs> uh, lots of different things, isn't it? So, I mean, the big thing is, I will always open conversations up, is about mental health, mm -hmm. Suicide is the big thing for me because it's something that's not talked about. People are scared to talk about it, I think. And people are, yeah, people are scared to even say the word sometimes, to be honest. And so I think it's difficult if you're the person that's feeling suicidal. It's also difficult if you're, you've got a friend or a family member and you don't know how to, to say it. And some people get the thought that if you say the word, that'll make it happen. Yeah, yeah. And, that's, and you see, that's where the myth is very, very wrong because actually saying nothing is the worst thing you can do because mm. you're not acknowledging that situation. It's very much about acknowledging and asking that question because as human beings, we're very good at going, are you okay? Yeah, how are you? That's what we do. It's almost like a triggered response. But actually what you should do is ask that question again mm. and you'll probably get a better response. Um, and sometimes opening up yourself allows somebody else to speak. So, yeah, definitely. Um, all right, what else have we got? If you were cast... Cast away, what three things would you take? Oh, God. This is a difficult one. Um, I was going to say me golf clubs, but I don't really play golf anymore. Um, Not sure how well they'd work on the sand. I was going to say well. that's going to be the difficulty. I'd definitely take some food. <laughs> <laughs> that would be the first thing. Um, 
I don't know. I think I'd take... It's going to sound really wrong to my wife, but I'll take my dog. Because <laughs> he's a um, he's really good person to take. He doesn't answer back to me or do anything else. And like, I don't really know. It's a hard one. I mean, again, I wouldn't take my phone because actually it'd be nice to be away from that type of thing and all of the other stuff. Probably won't last very long anyway. No, exactly. That's what I mean. And, and you look at it. Like, that's actually a good thing like for all of us. I think like when you you look at them things like the things we take for granted are sometimes the things you need to break away from mm. um, I don't really know what else I'd say it's a really hard one I don't really know um, so you've got your food your dog you've got me food my dog um, and then what else did I take because even I couldn't take like a radio sound because I wouldn't get any any tunes um I think I'll be all right just for me dog, to be honest. We'll be all right. We'll be fine. And then <laughs> if I get rid of the world. I was going to say, we could take on the world. Well, he comes on a lot of my walks, so he's, he's sort of me, me pal anyway. So uh, what's the best advice someone has given you? <sighs> There's lots of things. Um, the one thing I do remember is take one day at a time is yeah. one of the best things I ever learned because quite often for me, one of the things I do remember is I wanted to be me again with the classic saying I used to say in my head, but actually you're just a version, new version of yourself every day. Mm. And it just taught me to take one day at a time instead of actually thinking of where I should be instead of what I need to do today. Yeah. And, and again, I think that would be the best advice that somebody ever gave me really. So, and then the last one. Uh, what is one thing you have always wanted to do? I suppose one of the things has always been I've wanted to do a parachute jump. I've always wanted to do that. So I've done lots of other different things, and that's one thing that I suppose on my bucket list I've always wanted to do. Um, Anything holding you back? Not really, no. Just need to get it booked. Just need to get it booked and done. Um, And I'm 50 probably, well, 50 in not this year, the year after. So maybe that's something that I might do. It's something I've always wanted to do. Um, I like the idea of that part of again doing something outside of your comfort zone uh, you know I do a lot of stuff even cold water therapy um, which I haven't said in this is something I do and again that's the same sort of principle it's like something that makes you it's something a bit different that makes you feel good as yeah. well so um, but yeah definitely that's what I'm planning to do so. great answer and uh, here's the actual final one okay I've got the last one then so what would be the title of your life story I mean, I have thought about this a few times because I've had people say about writing a book and doing all sorts of stuff. I mean, probably a little bit about what you think life should be and what it really is, possibly. A little bit of like setting the bar sometimes as well, maybe setting the bar to It's hard to say. I mean, I call myself the mental health runner. And the reason I call myself for that because I was running all of the time. But... Maybe running away from my problems might be something I would yeah. call it because running was almost like my thing. And actually, I didn't realise it, but running away from my problem was almost like, is my life story. Yeah. Um, and now I recognise that and understand that. So it's probably quite a good term for using it. But again, the, the, the name of the Mental Health Runner only came about really because of my running and the connection with mental health. Yeah. It was purely the thing don't necessarily run as much now, but I still have a lot of involvement in running and I still do run. And I think that's probably 
Yeah, you need to update it. The mental health runner, Walker. Walker. Go pro golfer. Go pro golfer. <laughs> but, but that is the thing, because my life has always been really around sport, really. Yeah. That's what I've always done. And I think that's where quite often people connect with you as well, because sport and physical activity is a big thing for most people. And it's something that whatever you do can benefit you. You know, if you can go out there for a walk, a swim, you know, yoga, whatever it might be that actually helps you, it will make a difference to you. Sometimes it is that thing of just giving it a go and going for it. That's one thing I'd say for anybody. So that's brilliant advice. Well, thank you so much for coming on our podcast today and talking to us. It's been brilliant having you. Yeah, absolutely. I've loved it. It's been brilliant. And the questions and last questions were fantastic. So (laughs) it's good to hear. Thank you. Okay, see you later.